Welcome to Citizen Science, stories of science we can all do together. I'm Justin Schell. This is the first of two episodes that will focus on how citizen science can be done by and within cultural heritage institutions, including libraries, archives, and museums. In this episode, we'll focus on how natural history museums and public libraries have involved members of their communities in projects that can contribute to local, national, and global understandings of scientific questions. In the second episode, we'll focus on how these institutions ask the public for help in better understanding their collections, some of which can date back centuries. Through crowdsourcing projects on platforms like Zooniverse, these collections can better inform contemporary work on biodiversity, climate change, and much more. We hope that if you work at one of these kinds of places, you'll be inspired by what you hear and be able to apply it at your own institution. We'll have lots of resources to help you in the show notes. Also, you'll hear multiple people talk about iNaturalist, which is a mobile and web-based application that allows anyone to contribute and classify biodiversity photographs. We dedicated a previous episode to iNaturalist, so please give that a listen to learn more details about it. The idea of a natural history museum in some people's minds is it's grandma's attic. It's a place of these amazing treasures, but it's old treasures. And there's nothing new being added to the museum or that the information that they have on display is very well known. And there's no new information even being gained on the study of those objects. That's Richard Smart. So my name is Richard Smart, and I am one of the managers of the Community Science Program at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. A big part of Richard's job is to show people how much more a natural history museum can be through community science. Richard's worked in a variety of roles in the field of informal science. He's worked at small science centers, the Stormwater Management Outreach Program for the city of Dallas, and the Botanical Research Institute of Texas. That's really prepared me to have the job I have now with community science because I have worked a lot with the public, educating people on different environmental issues, translating science so it's accessible to the public. I feel like my career has definitely led me to this path of working at NHM and working in the community science program. Community science at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County focuses on gathering data on the region's complex biodiversity, the variety of life in a given area. Museum scientists' research projects seek to understand the region's current biodiversity and how it's changed over time. Community members submit photographs as the main way of contributing data to these research projects. At our museum, we're really poised to answer those questions because we have our collections and we have access to what has been documented here with physical specimens. And then now we can add to that knowledge by using digital photographs of current populations of organisms to understand how has things changed, where are we seeing increases, where are we seeing decreases in biodiversity. And then once our scientists are able to have that data, they can ask higher level questions such as, why are these changes happening? Richard stresses though, that such data isn't only for scientists understanding and their subsequent academic publications. If we can find out what some of these drivers of biodiversity are in regards to increasing and decreasing biodiversity, we can then hopefully impact public policy. We can show these organisms are doing well in an urban habitat because of these factors. Then talking with decision makers, policymakers about how can this data then be used in urban planning. Communities respond to that. They respond to this data is 
going to be used. My photographs will be looked at and I can be a part of affecting LA's future in a very positive way. As you've probably noticed, Richard and the museum use the term community science to describe their program. When I started at the museum in the fall of 2012, we were the citizen science program. And that was a term I was familiar with since I began working in this field. Over the past two years, museum staff began to explore changing the name. We started having internal conversations and we being the museum staff, including people from executives on down to different scientists and educators, as well as hearing from um, members of the public. We started asking them, like, no, how do you feel about the term citizen science? How do you feel about the term community science? Some people did not have any negative connotations with the term citizen. And some did, some were wondering about, you know, what does citizen mean? Do you have to be a citizen of a certain city, a state of a country to participate? In asking these questions, the team started to recognize the barriers the term had for some members of their communities. We really started moving towards the term community science to be as inclusive as possible. We really need all Angelinos, whether you're living here, whether you're a tourist, we need everyone to participate. Richard points out that Leela Higgins, the senior manager of the community science program, is from the United Kingdom and is not a citizen of the United States. So it's really, I think, unique and powerful that we can really relate to people and share her story, as well as the stories of some of our other um, colleagues, and why the term community science, why we move towards that, so we can be inclusive and attractive to more people particularly here in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is one of the most diverse places, one of the most diverse cities in the United States, if not even the entire world. Richard and his colleagues have been very happy with people's responses to the program's new name. When we're first introducing ourselves to people, people have great warm connotations with the word community. I think most people feel like they are a part of some community. It is a very approachable term, and we can start on some really solid footing without having to explain what we mean when we were using the word citizen. So we are officially now the Community Science Program at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. For the museum, though, it's much more than just a name. As with the best kinds of community and citizen science projects, they're always thinking about the benefits for those who participate and contribute. We want people to know that their observations matter to us. We don't want it to be one-sided where people are contributing data and contributing data and we think they feel good about it, but there's no uh, reciprocal benefit to them. So we really try to structure our programs, whether it's a training program or it's one of our meetups or some type of social where we are acknowledging our participants' contribution of their data, of their time, of their equipment, um, and trying to inform them of what are some discoveries that have been made by our different participants. We really try to honor people that way because we know that they're providing a great service for us and we value that. We definitely value their data points and we value their time. While the Community Science Program has a number of separate projects that people can participate in, it's the annual super project that brings all of them together. Now in its third year, the super project came about after the founding of the museum's Urban Nature Research Center, which not only tied these projects together, but also facilitated collaboration between many different departments of the museum. Participants in the Super Project primarily use the iNaturalist app to share photographs and observations of plants, animals, and other life they see in their surroundings. 
To get a better sense of what participating in the Super Project is like, I spoke with Sarah Medina, a volunteer with the last two Super Projects. My name is Sarah Medina. I'm a volunteer community scientist at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles. Sarah grew up in the same neighborhood as the museum and has fond memories of regularly visiting the dinosaurs and other exhibits the museum offered. After moving back to L.A. from Dallas, she was looking for a way to reacquaint herself with the city. I saw a post on Facebook saying that they needed some people to volunteer for a year-long project with the museum, something that I was already doing, which was observing uh, nature in my backyard, and I thought oh, this would be kind of fun. Soon, she was volunteering as a community scientist and participating in the Super Project. Richard and Sarah told me about the specifics of what this entails. Sarah will do, in the first half of the month, will do a survey around her local yard. I would take pictures of the birds or spiders or things that I was finding there in my yard. It could be mushrooms. It could be spiders that were coming out, um, you know, in the night in our trees or different fruit trees or birds that were nesting up there. So that was one part of it. And then the second half of the month, Sarah will then go out and do what we call a neighborhood survey. Once a month, I would also run a report where I would walk around my immediate neighborhood, or it could be a block or two blocks away, and just go see what else was there. Anything that maybe I wasn't seeing in my core site, different birds or different species, or maybe people had mushrooms on their front lawn that I wasn't seeing in mine. And then we also ask people to do um, at least one or two open surveys. So this is where you could go to a park in our study area. You can expand where you go because we are interested in what people see where they live, but we're also interested in seeing what might be in a park area in a more natural area for that comparison and contrast. The work of Sarah and the other Super Project volunteers results in thousands of data points. Richard recognizes, though, that this is a much bigger time commitment on the part of volunteers. But that's why then we try to really communicate with our super project participants and really try to provide touch points where they can talk with us virtually as well as in person as much as possible. These communication touch points can take many forms. Sometimes it's a newsletter emailed to all participants. Other times, this is in person through public meetups and participant events, where Richard's colleague, Mays Connolly, will provide food and fellowship for participants as they talk through discoveries and other program elements. These kinds of events, whether it's part of the Super Project or not, offer a way for the museum to better understand what motivates people to participate and how they can shape the community science efforts. We always do um, what we call our wow moments. We ask people to stand in a circle so we're all facing each other, and everyone shares what was one moment during the program that really made you go, wow, where you observed something exciting or learned something interesting. Everyone shares that, including staff. Sometimes people are talking about some of the different organisms that they learned about. And some of them talk about different aspects of the training or the meetup or the connections that they made in talking with a fellow participant. One of the benefits of using iNaturalist for the Super Project is that museum scientists can communicate directly with volunteers about an observation. So if I posted a photo of a spider, and I do this, I will see a spider that I recognize as a spider, but I don't know what type of spider it is. I can go on to iNaturalist and identify it as a spider. And then one of the other people on iNaturalist, like Lisa Gonzalez, who works here at the museum in our entomology department, can then help me identify it down to species if possible. 
Another museum scientist who communicates with participants via iNaturalist is Greg Pauly, the curator of herpetology, or amphibians and reptiles. Greg Pauly can ask people a question saying, you saw these alligator lizards in this biting hold. How long did you see them in this hold? And they can respond back saying, oh, I saw it for three hours as I went in and out of my uh, house on Saturday. Then he can add that time limit to his data. Sarah really values the in-person communication she has with scientists at the museum. They were giving us feedback on the observations that we were making, all the contributions that we were submitting to them every month with our reports. And so that was really cool to see. It's one of those tangible things that you can see, like, oh, I'm not just out there in my neighborhood making these observations, or I'm not just out of my backyard uploading another month's worth of spiders. No, it was actual information that the museum was taking, um, you know, from findings that we were making. Sarah and the other participants in the museum's various community science projects have made many incredible discoveries. Richard told me about a few of them, starting with the Bioscan Project, which is run by the museum's curator of entomology, or insects, Brian Brown. This project involves participants installing a malaise trap, a tent-like structure used for capturing and preserving flies. Our scientists work with them to collect these insects that are caught in the trap and that are then caught in a jar of ethanol, which preserves their DNA. And then our scientists sort these insects out. We've discovered over 41 new species of flies that had never been described in science before. So these were brand new discoveries of organisms. And yes, there are flies, but they're really interesting that had never been before found or described in the entire world. And they were found right here in the city of Los Angeles. When we talk to people about, we are finding species of organisms that have never been found or, or at least described in science before, that is a big eye-opener for people. And it motivates them to think, what can I discover? Other projects like slime, snails and slugs living in metropolitan environments, and rascals, reptiles and amphibians of Southern California, have had similar kinds of discoveries. People are really making big discoveries of biodiversity here in the city. There's a great snail story that I like called Xerotrica conspircata. When it was first discovered, this snail did not even have any type of common name. Scientists knew it existed, but we didn't know this snail was found in Los Angeles until two of our community scientists, Emily Hahn and Gregory Hahn, documented it and the photograph was shared with us. And Jan Vendetti, our curator of malacology, she went out to their house because she communicated with them on iNaturalist. She went over there and verified the discovery, collected some specimens, and this is what we would call a county record. It's the first scientific publication of a species being found in a new geographic location. In this case, first time being discovered in the county of Los Angeles. These kinds of discoveries are only possible because of volunteers participating in the community science program. So we need people like Sarah and our other participants to let us know what they're seeing in their backyard. It all has value and it all can become data points in our projects. So it's nice to talk to people about these exciting discoveries that happen because it really has contributed to greater understanding of biodiversity here in LA and Southern California. 
Richard believes such discoveries are made possible by community science being integrated throughout the museum and not just isolated into a specific unit. This does not happen overnight, however, and he'll stress that to other museums who want to build a community science program. A museum-wide or an institution-wide initiative for community science is wonderful because you can expand your capacity and really have a bigger impact that benefits you as well as your participants. But it will take some planning and it will take some effort because you do want to get buy-in from your staff because you're going to be asking for your staff's time and your staff's capacity. It will be a lot of small steps and a lot of meetings, he says. My supervisor and I, we met with the education department. We met with the research and collections department. We met with marketing communications, with advancement, talking about what is community science? What are things that we think it can bring to the museum? And then we also definitely have to do a lot of listening, thinking about some of their ideas on how they can get some integration. I can do this. I can get community science into my program this way. And maybe it's different than what we were expecting, but being open to that and also open to any pushback on that people might be having, any questions that they might be having. Navigating these kinds of conversations takes time. And this certainly was the case with the development of LA's community science program. I probably didn't do my first public meetup uh, at the museum until two and a half, three years. You know, initially it was really through working with school programs, working with public programs, doing internal training and talking to our scientists about what are their needs, what could be improved. So lots of talking and getting feedback and lots of listening as well. The end result of these conversations, an integrated and flourishing community science program, can help change people's minds about what a natural history museum can be. Through community science, people understand that at NHM here in Los Angeles, we have working scientists who are studying ecosystems currently here in Los Angeles and California and throughout the world. And then to then understand that, whoa, these scientists aren't just studying in the Amazon or the Arctic. They're studying nature here in the city. And to study nature here in the city, it's complicated because of private property. And so they need the public, they need me to contribute. Sarah echoed these thoughts when I asked her what keeps her coming back to volunteer with the community science program. There's always something going on. I'm always fascinated by it. And I learn a lot because I don't have a professional science background. So for me, it's still very uh, new and exciting. I always learn something uh, from everybody. You know, it's just one of those things that the ripple effect from one observation could change everything. So I think it's important to contribute to it in any little way that you can. For Richard, these kinds of programs help people better understand how much they can contribute to the future of what's around them or not around them. That really seems to open people's minds to thinking that science is relevant to them because there's a scientific study quite literally going on in their backyard and influence how their city is built and what that infrastructure might be like in the future, what types of plants and animals they might be seeing around them in the future. And it really makes them think that they can be a part of that scientific process, that research project. It's really neat to see that personal connection made with our staff and our participants. And then that definitely translates to a personal connection with the Natural History Museum here in Los Angeles.
their participation in community science makes them see the museum as relevant to them today. And so obviously I love that. We'll have links to the community science program at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County in our show notes. On their website, you'll find information on all the different projects they work on and how you can get involved locally if you're an Angelino or find inspiration to develop a community science program at your museum. Public libraries across the world are also taking part in community and citizen science. In 2017, SciStarter received a grant from the Institute for Museum and Library Services, or IMLS, focused on libraries as community hubs for citizen science. This grant helped them develop and test a variety of resources to help public libraries better facilitate their members taking part in community and citizen science. I spoke with two people involved in this project. First was Dan Stanton. So I'm a librarian at Arizona State University, and I support the uh, School for the Future of Innovation in Society. The other was Robin Salthaus. I'm the Adult Services Supervisor Librarian at the Southeast Regional Library in Gilbert, Arizona. We're part of the Maricopa County Library District. The project started three years ago when a colleague of Dan's at Arizona State reached out to him about writing a library guide to citizen science. Library guides are informational websites written by librarians on specific topics in the hopes of giving researchers a single place to find the most important information on a topic. Most important for this project, though, was that the group of librarians writing the guide interviewed Darlene Cavalier, a professor of practice at ASU, as well as the founder of SciStarter. In speaking with her, you know, it just seemed like an incredible concept. I'd never heard of it before. As part of these conversations, Dan and his colleagues asked Darlene about some of the challenges of doing these kinds of citizen science projects. You know, there may be equipment or tools that are required to do some of the projects that might be prohibitive for uh, people who otherwise would be engaged. Beyond material availability, though, Darlene also identified another challenge to these kinds of projects. You can contribute to these projects, but it still kind of feels a little isolated and people would want some kind of a community. Dan realized that libraries were well positioned to help address both of these challenges. You know, we we lend things and we bring people together for discovery and community. And so that's what libraries do. The collaboration started off with a specific project. Darlene followed up with me about, you know, the possibility of the library checking things out. And at that point, they were working on the GLOBE project with soil moisture. GLOBE stands for Global Learning and Observations to Benefit the Environment. It's a worldwide science and education program developed by NASA. It has a variety of citizen science projects, we'll link to some in the show notes, and this specific project was part of the SMAP, or Soil Moisture Active Passive Program. Participants collect soil samples and measure the amount of moisture within them as a way to verify satellite measurements used to study and prevent drought, wildfires, landslides, and much more. For Dan and his colleagues, their participation first meant some unexpected things coming in the mail. I was told by the mailroom that There was a large box waiting for me in the mailroom at the library, and I I went out there, and there was one of those industrial, like you see at McDonald's, uh, French fry warmers. So it was pretty big. Part of the project was you had to, you know, dig up some soil, you weighed it, 
and then you dried out the soil, and then you waited again. So you've got the amount of moisture in the soil. So these were for drying out the soil, but it wasn't very practical in terms of putting it into a kit. In developing the grant and the idea of putting together kits that were smaller than that industrial sized piece of equipment, Dan and the team first thought about doing this kind of project at their academic library. It didn't seem like it would work as well for me as an academic librarian to have these citizen science kits. Academic libraries, you know, aren't necessarily covering cradle to gray lifelong learning for people like public libraries do. So that was one of the suggestions that Darlene and I had talked about was this is really a good opportunity for public libraries. They do so much programming in all different areas that this would be a good fit for that. Librarians in the Maricopa Public Library System, which includes the Phoenix metro area, were well positioned to collaborate on developing these kits. When we brought it to the libraries, you know, the the librarians themselves are such a, a huge wealth of knowledge about the community and we really relied on our partner libraries and and especially robin at the southeast regional library to kind of take the lead in you know making it a reality even though robin hadn't had any direct experience with citizen science it wasn't too much of a stretch for her to start working with these kinds of projects i've always been involved in land conservation and advocacy so i've been associated with groups that have done it but i personally haven't ever until this project came along contributed to research like this so um it was just an excellent opportunity for me personally to connect the dots and also to allow our community to know about these opportunities While the library has offered a variety of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math programming for a long time, the idea of checking out citizen science kits was a new idea for them. Robin says, though, that it's definitely in keeping with the overall spirit of the library. Our um, administration, our director, certainly wants us to set a atmosphere in our public libraries so the community feels this is their front porch. We aren't just about books anymore. We don't sit around and putting our fingers up to our mouths going, shh, they're very active places. I've seen friendships made through our libraries and activities like citizen science can foster, you know, those relationships between people that may have never existed otherwise. The first step in the process was to talk to their communities and get their ideas for what kinds of needs the kits could serve. The grant team organized some stakeholder meetings. At each of the libraries, we had community members come in and talk about what kind of projects, what issues interest them. After these meetings, the team decided on developing three kits. One was strongly requested by one of our big community partners, East Valley Astronomy Club, and that was to get involved in a project that would monitor and measure light pollution. So we have one kit that we call a measuring light in the night. This kit contains a sky quality monitor, which is an electronic device that measures the brightness of the night sky. A red light flashlight, which can help you navigate in dark places without disrupting your measurements. A planisphere or star chart and a guide to using the equipment. Once somebody takes a measurement of light during the night, it's uploaded to this website and they see immediately the impact of their data. The data is uploaded to the Globe at Night website, which aggregates observations from around the world. 
This is a different organization than the NASA-sponsored GLOBE project we discussed earlier. The second kit is a set of accessories for a smartphone that includes multiple kinds of lenses and a tripod that helps volunteers take better photographs to upload to iNaturalist. The library helped organize a BioBlitz, an event where people tried to document all the living things in the areas around the library. Both experts and community members have gone out with their digital cameras, smartphones, or uh, tablets, and observed and then taken pictures of anything from a plant to a bug to a bird, and then uploaded it through iNaturalist. The last kit, Zombie Hunting, was first developed by the Oakland Museum. And even though some of our listeners may have celebrated Halloween not too long ago, the project isn't about those kinds of zombies. The goal is to track the spread of a specific insect, known informally as the zombie fly, which acts as a parasite to honeybees, causing them to abnormally leave their hives at night in a so-called flight of the living dead. It can have further effects, including disrupting their ability to fly and eventually leading to their death. Scientists who study this parasite believe it could be one factor contributing to colony collapse disorder. And it's a trap with an LED light you hang overnight to see if bees are attracted to the light because there's a good chance that those bees have been infected by a parasite. And then there's a water bottle trap that the bee would fall into and then you can observe it to see if the parasite actually is in the bee and breaks out. The kit allows people to see these so-called zombies and upload these observations to a project that tracks them worldwide. Despite the relative simplicity of the kits, as well as the documentation that is part of each one, Robin is quick to emphasize that there needs to be additional programming to go along with the kits. It's very important to have um, programs because really citizen science is still not a um, well-known term to many people. Um, we have signage ASU provided about the projects, but I still find one-on-one -on -one, um, contact with people is important to explain, well, what does this really mean? It's a continuous education process with our community. And so having programs where before and after we can then relate back to a specific project has been really important. She described how the kits could add a new dimension to events held by local groups at the library, such as the East Valley Astronomy Club. We'll tell them, uh, people about the fact that we check out telescope kits that this club has donated to the library. They've been wildly popular. And then why don't you extend that experience to checking out a citizen science kit that measures the light in the night with a light meter that you know, costs over $100, but we're going to remove that barrier for you and provide the equipment. This grant has invested the money into this tool, and now we're going to provide it to you for free through your library. Based on the success of the first round of kits, the library system has added kits focused on air and stream quality monitoring that people can check out. In addition, they participated in Citizen Science Day earlier this year, taking part in the Stallcatchers Megathon we discussed back in the very first episode of Citizen Science. Finally, they've installed rain gauges and air quality monitors on library buildings that both contribute to projects like COCORAS, the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network, and let community members view the air quality of the area around the library online. These projects have also helped the library connect with other organizations in the area. It's been a great opportunity to network with other people like the Phoenix Zoo or the Desert Botanical Garden 
Phoenix Herpetological Society. All those groups, you know, have been out there doing similar things, but we kind of now have this core interest that we can use to expand and extend our learning and data gathering. The biggest partnership in this project, of course, is the one responsible for the project itself in the first place. In partnering with the Academic Library at ASU, the grant has developed greater connections between public library communities and those at the university. Dan believes it's a way for ASU researchers to create projects that can directly benefit the local communities the university is part of. I'm obviously a big fan of public libraries and all the things that they do uh, in the community. Uh, and I work for uh, a university where a lot of research goes on and we are looking to do research that matters, looking to do research that matters in our community. Some of that is creating research projects or almost as important is making themselves available to come to the community and discuss these issues. The public is eager to learn uh, about things. And I think a lot of times uh, scientists and researchers, you know, they have to write their journal articles and things like that, but they also like to talk about the real implications of things and discuss things with communities. Robin talked about some of the researchers from Arizona State that have spoken at the library. We have an agricultural PhD at our ASU Polytech campus come in, and he gave a really thorough and um, helpful talk on honeybees. He's doing honey research down there and um, became familiar with this particular um, zombie project, so he's familiar with it, and just, you know, did a great um, talk to our community, the state climatologist, Dr. Nancy Sullivan came and talked about why the rain gauge was important, why measuring precipitation, you know, was important. These talks offered a way for members of the broader community to better understand what's happening in the academic world, a world that can feel isolated and inconsequential for those outside it. A lot of people really do want that bridge. It really can strike an important chord into our community and gaining a better understanding, you know, what's going on in these buildings of academia and why research is important and the outcomes of this research. So those kind of partnerships and continuing education are going to be vital to keeping this citizen science kits alive and, and sustainable. In reflecting on the last three years of the project and how much they've been able to accomplish, both Robin and Dan point to the value of public libraries in their communities, as well as the many benefits they can offer to the field of citizen science. We're kind of the gateway to, you know, all those opportunities. It's just continual engagement and, and making sure that these kits are, are a regular part when, you know, they're thinking of what to do next. I'm really excited about these opportunities as someone who volunteers um, outside of work, advocating for open space and the environment to know I've got some tools to uh, engage with and, and provide um, policymakers with data specific to you know issues we may be dealing with in those areas. The past three years have been just an incredible journey uh, from not knowing anything about citizen science to knowing a little something, I guess, uh, and certainly enough to know that I want to be an advocate for it. 
and you know again just the pleasure of working with public libraries that I know do so much in our communities. We'll post links to all the IMLS grant materials in the show notes. This will include details of all the kits we talked about, so you could put them together yourself. We'll also post another great resource from the grant, which is a librarian's guide to citizen science. This guide has a wealth of information for librarians who want to get their community members involved in citizen and community science. The institutions we've profiled in this episode, of course, are not the only ones working on community and citizen science. If you're at a museum or library working with these kinds of projects, let us know by tweeting us at SciStarter. We'd love to see what kind of projects you're working on and what kind of communities you're building. Citizen Science is produced by Caroline Nickerson and me, Justin Schell, in association with SciStarter. Music for this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions, used under a Creative Commons license. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback on what we've done and ideas for what we could do next. Send us a note at info at SciStarter.org. If you like this show, please rate or review us on your podcast platform of choice, and especially if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, or simply send it to a friend. We'll be back next month with a new episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you then.